Specialty Story, session number 103. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am excited to be back for another week where I get to talk to an amazing physician, this time a program director, an otolaryngology program director. And we're going to talk all about what you should be doing as a medical student if you are interested in matching into ENT. Now, obviously, what we talk about today isn't specific to ENT, although our guest today is an otolaryngologist and is a program director for ENT, but the advice that she gives is great for every residency that you are going to be applying for. And we also talk a little bit about women in the operating room as well. Let's go ahead and jump in and talk to Dr. Christina Cabrera Muffley, who is an otolaryngologist who's been out of training now for 10 years and is the residency program director here locally at the University of Colorado. We start the discussion by talking about when Christina first became interested in ENT. Yeah, so I went into medical school with a pretty open mind. Um, My dad's a doctor, he's an OBGYN, and I had volunteered at the hospital and I had followed him to the OR and shadowed a few times. I really liked the OR environment. It was just very meticulous and detail-oriented and the camaraderie of working with a team uh, to get a patient outcome was really interesting to me. So when I got to medical school, I thought maybe surgical, but I wasn't sure. And then I actually fell in love with my pediatrics rotation, which was shocking to me. I wasn't really a kid person before that, <laughs> but I loved um, the continuity of care. Um, I loved working with the kids. And so then I did an elective, uh, an otolaryngology pediatrics elective. Uh, And that was when I knew uh, because it had the best of both worlds. I could see adults. I could see kids. I could do surgery. I could treat patients medically. Um, It was it's one of the few surgical fields where you can actually see kids without a long fellowship afterwards. And so I thought that would be really a nice option for me. What was it that kind of got you into the ENT elective, right? There there are a lot of surgical electives for peds. How did you stumble into that one? Well, so most of them didn't have pediatric. So the surgical electives were urology, orthopedics, uh, ENT, I forget the other, anesthesia, I think was another one, but most of them were at the main hospital uh, where I did my my train, my medical school, they had one at the pediatrics hospital for ENT specifically. So it just, I think it was, you know, Providence, uh, that led me to that. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I think things have really changed since then. Um, as far as medical student electives, we, for example, at university of Colorado recently lost the ability for medical students to do an otolaryngology elective at all. Uh, they have to do a full rotation, when they're in their fourth year, but they don't get to experience any otolaryngology unless they shadow on their own time during their surgery block anymore. It seems like time is becoming more and more an issue. And, and that's kind of the, the purpose of, of why I started this podcast is that 
during medical school, there's just, there's not enough time to appropriately evaluate everything. And so let's just have some conversations with physicians and, and, and let people know what potentially they should even be looking for, for an elective. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard enough to figure out whether you want to do something surgical or medical. And then there's so many offshoots of that branches that you could go down. So having that opportunity is really, really critical. Yeah. What do you think, what, what traits do you think make for a good otolaryngologist? Um, I think being able to relate to people is really important um, because we're not pathologists. We actually do see patients in clinic and we, Ooh, the, pa- uh, the future pathologists are like, no, I'm going to talk to patients. Yeah, <laughs> they don't really talk to patients that much. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I think having an ability to establish a good rapport with patients, um, I think I think many people, most people can be surgically trained. I think it's more this um, kind of ability to synthesize the the knowledge and to translate that into who really needs surgery and who doesn't. Um, that's a little trickier. Uh, so the ability to do that. And I think, you know, in our field, especially people have trouble communicating. We do more with communication than any, almost any other field. Um, we see people who are hard of hearing. We see people who have lost their ability to speak. Um, so being able to interact with people that may not be able to communicate with you is also important. When it comes to um, the types of patients that you are treating as an otolaryngologist, you mentioned potentially people who, who can't hear you, um, potentially can't speak. What, what sorts of pathologies are you seeing, uh, as an otolaryngologist that, that students would potentially see? So it's really interesting because it is a very uh, anatomically specific field, but very wide ranging otherwise. So one day I can see a jawbone mandible fracture. Um, another day I can see hearing loss. Another, and actually not even in different days in the same clinic, um, I can see someone with um, a deviated nasal septum who can't breathe through their nose, someone who's had a stroke, who's had trouble verbalizing. So they, you know, figure out, we figure out whether the vocal cord dysfunction is part of that or not, or if it's an enunciation issue. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse set of skills. Um, I think uh, it's one of the nice, you can decide if you don't want to choose one thing, you can decide to do everything in one particular anatomic area. That's the way I think about it. Describe a typical day for you. So I'm a generalist, which means that I see more patients in clinic than some of my other subspecialist colleagues. So for example, a head and neck surgeon who sees cancer patients is going to spend a lot more time in the operating room because they're doing 12-hour free flap microvascular procedures and other big head and neck cancer resections. Um, Whereas I, my cases are generally one to three hours in length. Um, and my typical day is seeing my typical week, I should say, is seeing probably two to three days of clinic and then one to two days of operating room time. And I'm doing 
bread and butter ENT, as I like to call it. So tonsils, ear tubes, sinus surgery, septum surgery, uh, excisional biopsies, um, most of that stuff. And, you know, depending on what you like to do, if you want to do ear surgery or laryngology surgery, like if you have a vocal cord lesion, you can excise it. Um, those kinds of things, you can do those as well. And what was the decision for you to stay a generalist versus going in what seems to be the general direction for a lot of medicine is, is being a specialist? Yeah, I really enjoyed multiple parts of otolaryngology. So I didn't want to just do, you know, nasal surgery or just do ear surgery or just do laryngeal surgery. Um, I wanted to be able to do all of it. Uh, and, you know, as I've continued to practice over the last 10 years, I have narrowed down my focus somewhat um, and don't do some of the more kind of, uh, you know, gigantic procedures, but uh, it's a very satisfying thing to be able to treat multiple things at once. So it's interesting when I uh, do clinic at the main campus, all of my partners pretty much are subspecialists. So they they see patients who say, I can't breathe through my nose or I can't um, hear. But if a patient calls and says, I can't hear and I can't breathe through my nose and I've got this spot on my tongue, they see <laughs> me and I can actually treat all of that at once, maybe not at once, but all of those things um, without having to send them to three different people. Uh, so that's very satisfying. But I also have the luxury of being a generalist in a university practice. And so if there's something that I feel like would be better served by a subspecialist, then I can refer on to my partners. And I know that that they will be taken care of. Now for you, what was the decision algorithm for being in an academic center versus going out to the community? Yeah. So I, my first job was actually at an academic center. Um, I think, you know, it'd be um, silly of me to not attribute some of this stuff to lifestyle. Right. So as a general, I chose general because I really liked general and not choosing one thing, but also because I was getting to the time of my life when I wanted to start having a family. And so it was not having another year of fellowship. And so instead of me going to fellowship, I followed my husband, who's a surgeon, to his fellowship and then got an academic job at the same hospital where he did his fellowship. And so I it opened my eyes to academic practice. I fell in love with that. It wasn't something that I considered or sought out at the beginning, but it was something that really uh, was satisfying to me. And I ended up being an associate program director while we were there and just fell in love. And I thought, you know, this is something that I can do to make a difference for, you know, future generations, basically. You know, we always talk about having a legacy. I mean, I can see, you know, however many patients a week and make an impact, but if I can train someone and they and multiple people, multiple residents, and then they go on and treat more patients than I could ever treat in a lifetime, then that is very satisfying to, to give back to that, to that, uh, legacy. So yeah. a little exponential impact there. Exactly. For a medical student thinking about ENT, and, and trying to understand what that path looks like. What, what does the path look like to become a, a, an ENT doc? Yeah, so ENT continues to be one of the most competitive specialties to get into, um, which 
it's unfortunate for our applicants, um, fortunate for us because we've got plenty of great candidates to choose from. Um, so really it, it's difficult for people who don't have the either clinical rotation grades that they should have or the step one score or research opportunities that, that they should have to to really attain a position. Uh, it's really interesting too, because over the last 20 years, really, um, ENT has always been known as very, very competitive and the step one scores have gone up uh, every year pretty much until they hit a peak five years ago uh, where they were um, had a mean of 250. Oh. And then about, right, I know a pretty significant score, um, which by the way, I didn't get anywhere near that, but <laughs> you know, and somehow I got in. So, but then two years, three years ago, actually, so not this match cycle, but the previous two match cycles, um, all hell broke loose. And we had 14 unmatched positions in 2017 and 12 unmatched positions in 2018, which is unheard of. We've never had more than one to two unmatched positions ever. Uh, and, and, and you're talking about that, every program, not just your program. Yes, this yeah. is nationally, yeah. right? So there's approximately 300 something positions every year. And so the reason that we didn't fill those two years. We, you know, my program failed, but um, other programs had openings is because fewer people applied. So instead of having 400 applications, we had 300 applications for two years straight. This past cycle, it actually swung again, the pendulum swung again. And so we had about 450 applicants this year. And so there were a lot of unmatched applicants, which again is incredibly unfortunate because looking at these applications, I mean, these are incredibly accomplished people who, you know, deserve a position. I could have interviewed, you know, at least 300 to, to 350 of these applicants and been satisfied with mm -hmm. having them as a resident. Why do you think ENT is so competitive? I think because of the supply and demand issue. So there's really only 320 positions. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of people want to do it. I also think, I mean, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back here, but we, we are also known as the nice surgeons, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we tend not to throw things in the OR, not that other surgeons do, but you know, it, it's, it's one Never. of these things where you cultivate this reputation where, um, you know, for a surgical profession, you can have a decent lifestyle, um, while making a huge impact. Uh, and there are just not that many positions. Yeah. That's, uh, it's classic, classic supply and demand. The same for, I'm looking at the, uh, the match data right now. Same for like neurosurgery, right? Neurosurgery is even less yeah. than that. Um, and you, when you think of the more competitive specialties, it seems to be a supply and demand issue. Not always, but uh, lifestyle obviously is a, a big one. But for a surgical field, uh, supply and demand definitely plays a huge part. So it's super competitive, right? Not a lot of spots and, and 400 applicants. If you think of the, the year you're talking about 400 applications for 300 spots or a little more than 300 spots, what is a student supposed to be doing to help their application stand out and to get one of those spots? Yeah. So I don't think you have to have 
a 250. Um, we interview plenty of people who do not have a 250. Um, I think it helps if you do. And I think if you don't, you need to have other aspects of your application that really help you shine. So other things are clerkship grades. Um, you, we look at really the general surgery clerkship and the internal medicine clerkship as the key ones that really tell us uh, how you've been doing. Uh, so honoring those is helpful, although a lot of medical schools have gone to pass fail now. So you can't always tell how people did in their clerkships. The dean's letter does give you some insight, although again, the dean's letters are often cultivated to be, you know, the most positive of the positive comments. And so it's hard. Um, I think in in the last five years, I would say the research output of applicants applying to otolaryngology has gone up astronomically. So whereas we used to see people who had one oral presentation or one poster or, you know, maybe one publication, now we're that is actually the norm to have at least one. And many people applying have multiple publications. They may not all be in otolaryngology. They may be in orthopedics or general surgery um, or even other, you know, non-surgical fields. And that that's fine. That counts. But it's, it's really interesting to see that evolution over the last several years. For an applicant who is a, a pretty easy no from you guys, from you specifically, when you're reading an application, what, what is on an application that, that kind of makes you go, yeah, no, this is like the board score may be great, but I'm going to pass. Yeah. So I think someone who um, doesn't have anything else, you know, so I don't care if your board score is 280 and I have seen one or two of those over the years. <laughs> um, if you have no volunteer activities, if you haven't participated in any research projects, even if those haven't led to publication, if you have nothing to list in that section of your application, um, if your letters are mediocre. Um, and you know, there's code for letters. I don't know if yeah. students know this, but, um, there's when you have a statement like top 5% of students I've ever worked with, that pretty much seals the deal that that's an amazing letter. Um, so if you don't have those other pieces of your application, then I'm going to pass. And it's, it's hard because, you know, like I said, 300 of the 400 applicants have those pieces of the application in some form, you know, are excellent. And so to try to narrow that down, I mean, we interview approximately 60 people every year for our four positions. And to try to narrow that down is sometimes a little bit of a, you know, difficult thing. And, and it's really, it's also interesting because I hear it from applicants all the time after the process, they say, yeah, I can't believe I didn't get an interview to XYZ program, but I got an interview to this other program. And it, it just, I don't know why. And I, and I always tell them, yeah, we, we don't really even know why. Maybe yeah. I was in a great mood when I read your application, or maybe you had some sort of phrase in your personal statement that resonated with me, or maybe you, your volunteer activity was something that I participated in when I was a medical student. Right. And so it's, it's hard. Um, we do some somewhat rely on geography as well, because clearly somebody who we, we only have one resident right now in our program who is from the Northeast um, because we're in Colorado. So someone who is from the Northeast 
who is exactly the same as someone who's from, you know, Oklahoma, we're probably going to interview the person from Oklahoma just because they're more likely to actually look at us as a as an option for their training. And it seems like the the idea is very similar to medical school. It's like, oh, I, I don't want to interview you and accept you if I kind of have an idea that you're not going to come here. Right. So there are things that, you know, each program has their own pros and cons, right? Each program has has their strengths. And if there's something about our program that you are really interested in, let's say that you feel like you like plastic surgery also, and you really want to train in how to do cleft palate and reconstructive work. We're one of only five programs in the country that offers cleft palate training in our pediatric hospital. So, you know, that may signify that you're more interested, but it's always hard to tell because, you know, people look on our website as they should and see what we're about. And how do I know that it's a real interest versus something that, you know, you put in there to try to get an in, you know, and I don't blame them for that. Like, I actually applaud that. I think that's smart. Um, You know, you do what you need to do to get where you want to go. But um, it's also tricky from this end to really know what people's motivations are. How should a student be evaluating programs? It, it seems like potentially more and more, just like with medical school applications, residents or medical students are just kind of shotgunning and, and applying to as many programs as possible. Yeah, and I don't I don't think that our websites, I mean, I can't speak for other fields, but I know for otolaryngology, I've looked at multiple websites um, and I, I don't think it there's a lot of information that helps you make that decision. I think a lot of applicants apply geographically um, if they have family in the area or it's somewhere where they want to be for other reasons. Um, you know, I think I think it's an interesting um, process of how people decide, you know, what are top tier programs, too, because in otolaryngology, there are very few programs that are actually better than other programs. When you have a such as competitive specialty, almost all of our 120 programs are actually amazing. There's a few every few years that are struggling. Maybe their uh, chair left and other people left with them. So their you know, faculty is, is decreased or they're missing a certain subspecialty for a few years because of recruitment issues. But other than that, 99% of our programs will give you excellent, amazing training. And so it can be really hard to know what you're looking for because they're all very similar. I don't think you get a great idea of what a program's truly about until you go there and see how you fit with the um, culture and the residents more, more specifically in the faculty. But, you know, I can't interview 300 people, so it's hard to, to figure out who to interview and it's hard for applicants to figure out where to apply as well. Yeah. What's the application process like? Is, are they applying to categorical programs or do they have to do separate intern years? What does that process look it, like? Yeah, it used to be a separate intern year, but now it's combined. So, and you do, most of our interns are very happy about this fact. They do six months of ENT, which it used to be a complete general surgery year when I was, when I went through residency, but they love that it's actually six months of ENT now. Um, so they, yeah, they generally um, 
apply just for a categorical position and it's five years. Uh, and then we arrange the other six months of intern rotations with other departments. There's, it's va- actually very prescriptive through the ACGME, what rotations the interns can do. And so we, we keep that in mind and, and set those up. What does the rest of the residency path look like? Yeah, so most programs will have a research block during their training. Um, It's usually somewhere between four and six months during your third or fourth year, sometimes second year, but usually a little later. Uh, But other than that, you are doing clinical work the entire time. So as a junior resident, you're going to do more clinic at most programs. As a senior resident, you're going to spend a lot more time in the operating room. Um, And it's it's really a progressive um, uh, autonomy experience as well. So as a junior resident, you're going to generally have a backup uh, call person that that covers, you know, is there for questions. Uh, and then as a senior person, you're going to be the, the main person assessing the patient and then signing out to your faculty. What does call typically look like? Is it kind of stay at home, answer the phone, or are you in the hospital most of the time? Yeah, so I think it depends per program. Um, all of the programs that I've been a part of, except for one, actually, over the years, either in training or as faculty, um, were home call. And I think that is the, the trend. I think most programs are like that because we generally cover several hospitals at once. So our program, for example, we cover four institutions and there's a junior resident on primary call. They're the first person who gets called and then a senior resident to back them up in case something needs to go to the operating room or if they're just overwhelmed with multiple emergencies at multiple hospitals. Um, I would say that it's very rarely a home call. It's actually car call because you're driving (laughs) to all the hospitals all the time. Um, And, you know, we've actually arranged to have call rooms for our residents at the various hospitals as well, uh, because they actually are there a significant amount of time. And if you're waiting for the operating room, you know, and and a case is going and it's not going to go for an hour, you're not going to want to drive home and then come back, you know, so you can stay in the call room for that hour and hopefully get a nap. When it comes to, oh crap, I uh, just blanked on my question. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know where I was going. The power of editing. <laughs> just random side note, when I first started podcasting, I didn't know how easy it was to edit audio. And so I, I would like start an episode just by myself and yeah. I would like get 10 minutes in, screw up and then start all over. <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I love my <clears throat> my editing software. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's fun, fun. All right. Um, for a medical student, when they're thinking about kind of uh, getting in front of program directors, getting in front of you, and they, they want to come to your program, what are your thoughts on doing elective rotations away from their home program? That's actually interesting. So I did a, I did an art, published an article about this because I was curious about applicants' perceptions because I have clearly perceptions, but 
I wanted to know what other applicants thought. And so about two years ago, I did a project with one of my residents at the time who's since graduated. Uh, and we looked, we sent out a survey to applicants asking them about away rotations. And what we found was that 90% of people actually thought the rotation was valuable, not necessarily because they all matched at their away rotations, but because they learned so much about the field and about another program so they could compare it to their home program. So, you know, it is, it's a double-edged sword, right? So doing an away rotation, I'm a fan of doing an away rotation. You're interviewing for a month, which is harder to do than interviewing for a day. Almost anyone can put on a face for a day, but doing so for a month is very difficult. Um, And so you're going to be probably judged a little more harshly over that month. However, if there's some place that you really, really want to go, having an away rotation is pretty much your only guaranteed way of getting an interview there. And even then it's not guaranteed to get an interview there because not all applicants get interviews at their away rotation if they didn't do a good job. But um, with the way that selection goes and with so many great applicants every year, uh, it's a little bit random what interviews you're going to get. So if there's a place you really want to go, I would highly recommend that you do an away rotation. And it does influence rank lists. So a lot of people who do an away rotation and do a great job match at that away rotation. Um, And, you know, even if it doesn't work out, so, you know, I did an away rotation, I didn't match there, but it gave me a lot of insight into how a different department operates and how residents interact with each other at different places. Uh, so you could really hone in on that during your one day interviews and, and see what you were looking for in that way, what kind of a fit you were looking for and what kind of questions to ask that you may not have thought of because you've only had this one experience at your home program. Now I'm sure you're getting a ton of feedback from your residents, uh, about the students who are doing their rotations. What, what are the things that a resident saying when you go, okay, that's, that's going to be a, a good future resident. Yeah. So I think it's the resident or the, sorry, the applicant who shows up on time, shows up early, um, carries around supplies, right? So wound supplies, tongue depressors are key. Uh, a flashlight is key <laughs> for looking in dark recesses of the oral cavity. Um, so it's someone who really want clearly wants to be there is asking intelligent questions um, is volunteering to do some of the things that, you know, are tough to do like uh, pull a drain or talk to the the patient who is unhappy um, because they're suffering, you know, and, and and making them feel heard. Um, So those are the, those are the applicants that we really uh, look for. I think what the residents have to say is ultimately more important to me than what the faculty have to say. Uh, Every year or every other year, we do have an applicant who comes and they are two different people. So they act one way with the faculty and then they act a completely different way with the residents. And that's a huge red flag for me because um, if you're, if, you know, if the residents really don't think you're a hard worker and you're just trying to sneak under the radar, and the faculty all love you. I, I don't want that type of resident in my program. Yeah, that's interesting. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this who wants to go and be an ENT, what does he or she need to do to, to help kind of stand out from the crowd? 
Yeah, that's really interesting because last year, the ACGME in, incorporated the DO programs into the the NRMP match. Okay. So we actually went from, I think, 110 programs to 120 programs, oh. and the number of positions increased by like 20 positions, which is, again, very rare for that to increase by that much per year because they incorporated a lot of the DO ENT programs. Mm. So I think it's going to change significantly um, having one standardized process for application. Um, there, I think there's going to be a lot more crossover over the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, I think like any applicant, if someone has, you know, a, an excellent application, they've got a good board score, they've got good clerkship grades, good letters of recommendation, re- some research, I think that they would be, you know, evaluated in the same way as, as an allopathic applicant. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of otolaryngology that a, a student interested should be aware of? As technology advances, I think we're going to have even more interesting uh, toys to play with. So we already have lots of toys like endoscopes and binocular microscopes, uh, all sorts of things that allow us to see into the dark crevices of the ears, nose, and throat, uh, where I think that's going to advance even more um, as technology continues to advance. But I think the ultimate uh, interaction, ability to interact with patients and the ultimate patient-physician relationship is not is not going to change. And I think um, as we go to a more um, kind of uh, lifestyle-based, um, not being the single, you know, otolaryngologist in a community, but actually having bigger practices, more, um, you know, less, less mom and pop shop uh, physician offices. I think that that's really the barrier that we need to address is still having patient connections and still having patients feel heard and feel taken care of by by each provider in in a way that that feels more one-on-one for the majority of surgical fields out there they are still very heavily male dominated for uh, a female listening to this wanting to go into ENT or, or another surgical field what what words of wisdom would you have for her to to navigate this process to have her voice heard Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I am staying in this field and don't go, you know, don't just stay home with my kids. uh, Well, the main reason is because I would go crazy. But (laughs) the second reason is because I believe in showing applicants, female applicants and residents that it's possible to have a life and to have a career. Uh, I think that having women in surgical fields is critically important. I think that some patients um, do find uh, that they want their doctors to look like them, uh, whether that's a gender thing or a racial and ethnic thing. Uh, you know, I think it's important to have a diversity of, of physicians in in our field. And I think that otolaryngology is a little bit behind the times as far as both gender disparities and racial and ethnic disparities. Um, There's data to back that up. 
I think the main thing is to realize that, uh, yes, surgery may not be as predictable as a non-surgical field, but you can make that into what you want by choosing the right job after residency. Residency is always difficult, no matter what field you go into. Um, surgical specialties are generally longer than non-surgical specialties, and that's going to be the toughest few years of your life um, from a from a work standpoint. But if you can get through that and you can accomplish the knowledge base that you need and the skills that you need, you can actually have a lot of room for or uh, to decide what you want your life to look like afterwards. So, you know, for me, um, I work full time. I'm married to another surgeon. I have two small children and I make it work. Does that mean that I am always home every single night for dinner? No, it doesn't. But does it mean that I'm home five nights a week at least. Yeah, I am. And I make that a priority. Um, you know, does it mean that I can do all this without help? No, I, we have a nanny. We, we have, you know, a person who cleans our house. It, it's not something that you can do alone and you have to have support, but it's definitely possible. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student who maybe just got back their step one score and didn't do as well as they hoped, uh, but still wants to progress forward and, and become an ENT? Yeah, I would highly recommend that you seek out a mentor. So someone who is on the application committee, the program director, associate program director in your institution. If you don't have an otolaryngology program at your institution, seek out one in a nearby um, area or institution and Talk to them about the reality of applying because as program directors in this field, we all know what it takes. Um, this is an amazing field. I, I love being an otolaryngologist. I love, you know, being an academic otolaryngologist and program director. And it, if you feel like you didn't get the score you wanted, that doesn't mean that the dream is is over. It, it means that you need to have other things that make you an amazing candidate and having a mentor to help you through that process is really critical. Um, and most people who you ask want to help. Um, they want to see you succeed. And so uh, don't be hesitant because you feel like you might be a bother. I always have um, students who I advise and they're always like, oh, so thank you so much for taking the time. No, this is what I live for. This is why I'm an academic otolaryngologist. I want to help and I want to see the next generation succeed because at some point I want to retire. And so I'm going to not be able to do this anymore. So <laughs> I want there to be good people um, to take over from me. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, that's really key. And I think um, don't use a step one score to judge yourself or your potential. Um, meet with someone and get real advice about what else you need. And real advice, speaking of mentors, you are a, a newly christened podcaster uh, with your Odo Mentor podcast. Talk about the Odo Mentor podcast and how students can listen to that. Yeah. So a few months ago, I thought this is going to be really fun. I want to do a podcast for otolaryngology. I looked around and most of the otolaryngology podcasts in existence 
were from journals where they highlighted excellent articles, which is a really great thing. Um, but there wasn't really any mentorship type podcasts within the field that I could find. And so I thought, why not? Um, I recently got promoted to associate professor. And so I have the luxury of uh, time before I apply for full professor to do some fun things. <laughs> uh, so I decided I'm going to just try this and see how it goes. So it's a one-on-one interview-based format, kind of like this one, where I talk to uh, other otolaryngologists about different topics. Uh, so far, there's three episodes posted, and I hope many more in the future, uh, about things, advice for residents and medical students, and hopefully eventually advice for even junior faculty, you know, how to advance in your field, how to choose a fellowship, how to uh, apply to otolaryngology as a specialty, you know, the nuts and bolts of what your personal statement should look like and those kinds of things. And, you know, we'll see where it takes me, but I'm really excited about it. And how can they find it? It's uh, Odo Mentor, O-T-O-M-E-N-T-O-R, and it's on iTunes and Spotify. So you can just search for it and download it. All right. There you have it. Another amazing guest. Great discussion all about otolaryngology, especially for you as a medical student, if you are interested in matching into otolaryngology and what you should be doing to make yourself the most competitive applicant possible. If you would like some more information from Dr. Cabrera Muffley, go check out her podcast at Odo Mentor. Again, that's Odo Mentor. Find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, probably wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.